Praise God. How are we doing? Yes. Tonight's going to be fun. Um, we really are glad you're here, man. It is so fun to get to worship with you guys. Um, be led by you guys, Casey and your whole team, man. I just, I praise God for you all, big time. Uh, so, we are, um, we're starting a series in the book of Revelation. Uh, and uh, it's going to be a blast. It is... Um, it's been a book that uh, has really challenged me, and specifically, this series is actually, we're just getting through uh, the first three chapters. It's going to take us eight weeks, so it's going to take us eight weeks to get through the first three chapters of Revelation because it's that packed, and uh, it's really a book that I think, man, everyone should go through and learn and love and fall in love with and know more and more. Um, a couple of resources, man, for the bigger picture, uh, our executive pastor's name is Bill Egner, and he does a class on Revelation, and actually a lot of, he's influenced me heavily in how I read it and how I see it, and, and so many things that I even preach and teach from uh, are from his wisdom, and he does a class, it's online, I'd encourage you to just check that out, or, uh, or next time he offers it, we'll throw it out at you guys, um, but for right now, we're just going to look at, tonight is going to be all of chapter one, so tonight's going to be kind of still big picture, flyby, introduction of the book, and then the next seven weeks, uh, we'll be in chapters two and chapters three. And just studying those chapters and what God is doing in those chapters has been super convicting for me. Um, it, has been, it has put me face-to-face -face in the word of God with this conviction of the Lord showing me these blind spots in my life that I need to grow out of and turn from and um, fall back in love with Jesus for. So it, I'm excited about it. But tonight, specifically in chapter one of Revelation, we're going to talk about Jesus. And uh, if I'm honest, we always talk about Jesus, right? So like, if you're just here to like, hit on chicks or pick up a guy right, uh, then, and you're like, you just show up week after week, and you're like, yeah, yeah, and you're like, they do talk a lot about Jesus, like, this is like a thing they do, and that's just kind of who we are, and if you go listen to Josh, Josh preaches at a bar across from TCU, the Aardvark, every Sunday morning, he's going to talk a lot about Jesus, it might be in different contexts, like Jesus when it comes to relationships, or when it comes to wisdom, or, or how we should proclaim the word of God, uh, our Sunday morning series here at Christ Chapel, uh, we just started a new series called the I Am Series. And in that, we are looking at who Jesus says he is um, each week. This last week, Dr. Kitchens, who's our senior pastor, um, just opened up the word of God and preached about who Jesus was. It was one of my favorite sermons. It was awesome. If you are not plugged into a church, um, I'd really encourage you, show up in this room at 11 o'clock and, uh, and just come and continue to stare at Jesus with us and talk and learn and look at who Jesus is. If you're already plugged into a church, great. Stay at that church, submit to the leadership of that church, get plugged into community. Uh, we love that you're here worshiping with us on Wednesday night, but stay submitted to that, uh, to that church if, if you're growing and if they're preaching the gospel. Uh, we encourage you to do that. So we're talking about Jesus because so much of what we need, the foundation of what we need as followers of Christ is to know who we're following, is to know Jesus. And we shouldn't settle for a false gospel, a fake Jesus, a less than who he really is uh, perspective. And so I need to share something with you guys, kind of serious, that has to do with my marriage. A couple of weeks ago, I found out something about my wife, kind of changed everything in my life. Uh, I found out uh, two weeks ago, and, and man, my wife is amazing, Danielle. She's not here tonight because we couldn't get a babysitter, but she's going to be listening to this tomorrow, and I'll be in trouble tomorrow. But for tonight, I'm not. Um, <laughs> We, we will celebrate our 10-year anniversary in April. Woo! Yep, okay, all right. Some April fans in here, or marriage, one of the two. Uh, 
so, um, or just celebrating. You just like celebrating. Regardless, uh, so a couple weeks ago, uh, I was at the house, and we were talking, my wife and I, and um, it came up just casual in conversation. And she told me that when she was in middle school, <clears throat> when my wife was in middle school, her mom would cut up baby carrots to put in her lunch. Okay, all right. I'm going to guess by the lack of reaction, one of two things. One, which is a smaller possibility that I'm overreacting. But more likely, it's that you didn't hear me. Her mom cut up baby carrots. Her mom cut up baby carrots in middle school. They're baby carrots. Who does that? Who prefers cut up baby carrots? They're, they're called baby, not just because they're a smaller version of a larger carrot, but because babies can eat them. She, I, I confirm she had teeth in middle school, but her mom cut them up and put them in her lunch. And that's what she wanted in her life. That was the woman I married, and 10 years later, I just found that out about her. How many times would you cut up a baby carrot? How many slices are there even to be had in a baby carrot? So obviously, this set us off in a big thing, and we've got some biblical counseling that we're going to, and we're going to be okay, guys. We're going to fight through this. Baby carrots, guys. Who needs... Anyway, um, there's obviously some stuff I got to work on. She's walking through some repentant stuff with some godly women in her life. One of those moments, you know, where you just look at her and just, I don't know who you are. Who did I marry? Why would you do that? Yeah, seriously, though. Um, seriously, um, we are going to come face-to-face in this series with, I believe, some of those experiences, but less ridiculous, with the God of the universe that we say we follow, right? I believe in the book of Revelation, the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, that we should have these eye-opening moments of, who is this? Who is this Jesus, right? Not in a cutting out baby carrots, that's funny, picturing baby carrots in a Ziploc bag makes me sick, but like, not that. But just this idea of who really is Jesus Christ? Who's this God that we say we're following, who we've, those who have pledged their life to him, those who have surrendered their life, who is this God that we're following? And what's he look like? And what does he do? And what does that personal relationship look like? That is where we're going. Um, we're going to look at it, we're going to stare at Jesus, and we're going to fight to understand. It's the goal behind why we're spending eight weeks to stare at the revelation of Jesus Christ and get to know him more and more and more. And I really do believe and pray that God is going to open your eyes to some things. That God is going to open your eyes to some things. That is our genuine prayer as a staff and leaders and all the other men who are going to be preaching through this, that God would reveal more and more of who he is through this series. So let me tell you a little bit about our author, John. John wrote this book, The Apostle. He was a big deal. He walked with Jesus. Uh, there's a story in Matthew when, when Jesus is walking down the shore and calls James and John, who are fishing, hey, drop your nets and come and follow me. And they dropped their nets, and they came and followed him. He walked with Jesus through his earthly ministry for three years. He was referred to as the disciple who Jesus loved, the beloved disciple of Jesus Christ. That's who is the author of this book, someone who knew Jesus. He's writing Revelation at the very end of his life. Um, it's, I, most historians would guess it's about 60 years from the time that Jesus died and was buried and was raised again and ascended. 60 years later, John is now on an island called Patmos that he's been exi- exiled to. All of the other disciples most likely had, at this point have been killed and martyred and killed in horrible ways. 
all the other guys who walked with, with Jesus uh, personally, those other 12 are all dead and gone except for John and he was close to Jesus. He was so close to Jesus. I want to just read this story, and I'm not going to preach John 13, but I just want to give you an example of, of how close they are. In John 13, we'll throw it up on the screen so you can just follow along if you want. Uh, the gospel, it says this, truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus talking, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. So Jesus is sitting at the Last Supper in John 13. This is the night before he dies. It's a pretty epic moment, right? There's paintings of it. It's a big deal, right? He's sitting there with his disciples, and this is where he's going to call out Judas Iscariot for betraying him. The disciples look at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. And then one of the disciples, whom Jesus loved, and we know from the other Gospels, this is a reference to John. We know this is John here, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side, like literally reclining on Jesus Christ, right? Jesus of Nazareth, is, is, he's leaning up against him. Peter motioned him and asked Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So the that picture, right, is a pretty significant picture in, in the Gospels. It's the Last Supper, and it's this picture where we see John, the author of the book we're going to be in for the, the next eight weeks, so close, so tight and intimate with Jesus that he is the guy sitting next to him, leaning up against him. And whenever all this super dramatic news of like, oh, shoot, somebody's going to betray him, one of, one of his people are going to betray him, gosh, that's a heavy question. Uh, Peter, who's kind of a big deal, it's like, hey, get John to ask him. John's the guy who's Titus. So Peter tells John, ask him who he's talking about. And John, it says, looks up. Like, he's leaning. He's like, hey, Jesus, who are you talking about? Like, that's the intimacy of the apostle John and our risen Savior now. This man historically walked with Jesus, knew Jesus, was close to Jesus no matter how close you think you are to Christ, lean in further. Seriously, lean in further, right? Have Jesus reveal some blind spots in your life, grow closer to the God of the universe. But that's where we're going with this uh, series. If you think you are super tight and close with Jesus, praise God, this apostle was closer. Lean into his words, okay? Lean in. Here's where we're going uh, tonight, specifically. Uh, we're going to move pretty quick through this chapter. And so if you're a note taker, I just want to kind of give you a, a long runway so this can all piece together as one big puzzle. We're going to see a setup set that John does pretty quickly, and then we're going to slow down a lot for about three or four verses. And we're really going to unpack what John is showing us about Jesus in those verses. And then we're going to book it uh, through the second half of the chapter pretty quickly, and we're going to slow down just enough to see this amazing interaction with John 60 years later interacting with Jesus Christ uh, in a really, really, um, I think, changing way, uh, life-changing way in chapter one. So let's get to it. Revelation chapter one, verse one. It's in the very back of your Bible. It's the last book, but we're gonna throw all the slides up here if that's easier and, and less distracting for you just to follow on the screen. Verse one says this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, 
who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So stop right there. So first off, uh, first off, I just got blessed because I read this out loud. And you will be blessed if you hear and obey. If you hear and obey, you will be blessed. The word of God says that. That is a promise in the word of God, hearing and obeying and doing likewise. Um, but also we see, notice, secondly, that this is about Jesus. This, verse 1, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so often we think of Revelation, the book, and some of, those guys, some of you guys who've been around the church for a little bit or knew anything about the Left Behind series and the horrible movies that were, that almost destroyed Christianity. Um, you, you walk through that stuff, and when you think Revelation, you think end times, man. This is all about the end times, and when we're going to figure it out, and like, is it Obama? Is it Trump? Who's the one? Who's the Antichrist? Who's it going to be, right? Uh, this, that's not the point of the book. The point of the book is Jesus. The point of the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Um, that's the point of the book, uh, and so we desperately, desperately need that. Look back with me. Pick up in verse 4, the next verse. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on the earth. Okay, stop right there. So John's writing to these seven churches, okay? So we see him laying out his plan, where he's going with this. He's writing to these seven churches, which later in this chapter, even he'll mention them each. He'll name drop each one of these churches. And he's going to call them out. He's going to speak into them specifically. And that's really where we're going to camp out the next seven weeks is those seven churches. And each one of those, I'm telling you guys, each one of those, as I've gotten to study and, and lean into them a little bit, are so convicting for me. Each one of these churches, I see myself, I see our community, I see our church as the body of believers and these major blind spots that we've got to start seeing and recognizing and repenting about. So again, who's he talking about there at the beginning of verse five? Jesus. So let's slow down and, and here, here we go. Picking up halfway through verse five there. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Right here. John is starting this book by telling us some major things about Jesus. Right here, John is telling us what he has done. He's telling us in this section what Jesus has done. And in a verse and a half, we're going to slow down and we're just going to unpack this verse and a half for a little bit because we don't want to miss and we don't want to zoom through and we don't want to skip into the rest of the book without stopping and saying, this is what John is testifying he has done. So in this verse and a half, first, so first thing we see that Jesus has done, we see that he has loved us. To him who loved us, it says. So John's admitting, yes, he has loved us. And the, he uses a present tense verb. He says, loves us. Jesus, says the apostle John, in the word of God, Jesus loves us. He loves us. Yeah, I mean, if we grew up in church, if we've ever sung the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible told me so. We've heard that. We've seen the bumper sticker. We've been to church. We nod our head to that idea that Jesus loves us. 
But what, is, what does that mean, right? Like, do we, do we hear that, and does that move us? Does that pin us back? The truth that Jesus loves us. I could say, um, I could say I love you, right? I could say I love you, but what does that mean? We just walked out of a series on love, and the whole idea of it was this challenge to let's take a deeper, more mature, more correct view of what it actually means to love someone, to love something, what the, the depth of that word really means. Because I could say, I love you, and it, it really might not mean much at all. And we can hear that word, and it doesn't actually attach itself to stir our hearts to worship, to produce change in our life, like I think it did whenever John said that. I think when John said that, it wasn't just white noise, that wasn't just something he said, I think that was important. I could say... Um, To understand whether or not he really loves us, we have to look at whether it's validated. So in the tailgate, somebody could have thrown away my trash, right? I left my trash on a bistro table, and somebody's like, hey, man, let me throw that away, and they throw away my trash. And I could have said, man, I'm going to give you a million dollars. Man, thank you. I'm I'm writing you a check for a million dollars. And I could say that, and that means really nothing. I mean, it's maybe something nice to say and well-intentioned to say, but it really means nothing unless there's actually validation. Unless they actually realize, like, okay, he only has $19 in his bank account, so, like, that's just a cute thing to say because there's no validation for that. And yet we use that word love liberally, but when it says Jesus loves us, what does that mean? And we throw around that word a lot. What does that mean? Is it validated? Has it been revealed? That word means nothing or next to nothing without action or sacrifice. So look how he proves it. Look how Jesus proves it. The rest of the verse, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sin by his blood. Validation of the idea that he loves us. He loves us. It's not just something cute to say that we'll see if it actually materializes. He loves us and has freed us by his blood. He proves it. Our God laid down his life for us. Our perfect God in the flesh walked the perfect life, and then laid down his life. He poured out his blood to set us free. He poured out his blood until someone stabbed him with a spear, and then blood and then water poured out of him. And he died on a cross after being whipped, after being tortured. He validated his love for us with this beautiful action, with this beautiful sacrifice, with this gory situation. And I think we just read that and say, yeah, he loves us. Let me go on a rabbit trail real quick. Um, Maybe you hear that, and for you, it's a little bit of a stumbling block. Either consciously or subconsciously, you think, okay, I get it. He loves me. Yeah, he died to set me free from sins, and this is all doctrine of the Christian faith. But... uh, it seems a little harsh, right? Maybe that's a stumbling block for you in your faith. Maybe you're wondering, why would God do that? Why would God, the God of the universe, torture his only son for me? And I get, oh, because he loves us so much to pay for our sins. But that just seems a little rash. It seems a little harsh. It seems a little, and so maybe that becomes this stumbling block for you. In, in which case, I think, that is a, uh, I think that is an incredibly reasonable stumbling block to fight through and to think through and to, to wonder about. Man, is this Christian God, is this Christian God just mean to pour out his wrath and to let his son die like that? And the reason that that is so important is that this God, who is holy and perfect, is also just. 
and the just penalty for our disobedience is death. And we think, well, why? Like, he's God, right? Why? Or we think, it's not that bad. I am not that bad. This world is not that bad. The, the gospel of somebody getting up there talking about how much we deserve hell and bl- the blood payment and the death of Jesus Christ, this gory crucifixion, that just, this just seems so unnecessary or extreme or brutal or uncivilized. What kind of God would do that? It's because our mind is still focused on that this system is about us. It's, it's because, sure, Honestly, when you look at my sin, maybe my sin isn't that bad compared to you guys, right? No offense, but yeah, like compared to each other, right? Like Josh is a little better than me in life, I would say. And so sure, his sin, if he just compares himself to me, I'm obviously a little better than Tyler, right? And so like, you know, we just, (laughs) I love you, Uh, right? So sure, in this comparison game, but if we compare ourselves to a holy and perfect and righteous God, if we put ourselves up, just think about, Uh, Think about the person who is the worst person that you know. I don't mean your most annoying friend. I mean this person is a horrible person, right? I mean this person is awful and and you wouldn't want to be around them, right? You would not want to be in a relationship with that person, maybe because they are hurtful and dangerous and all of those things. And that's just the comparison game with that otherworldly person. This is a holy and perfect God. And our worship won't make sense. Our relationship with God and the gospel won't click until we realize the depth between us. We will not be able to appreciate the cross and the fact that he poured his blood out to free us from our sins until we realize that this thing is about him and not us. This whole life, your life, is not about you. It's not about you and Jesus did something to give you a better life and then you get a better afterlife. This whole thing is about him and his glory. And I just play a part in that as opposed to him revolving as as a major player in my life, setting me free so that I can do great things or live a good life or have a great afterlife. This is about me submitting myself under him. And to do that, I have to recognize there is sin and disobedience that separates us. And I and that is a hard, hard concept. If we just think, I'm not that bad, and we just compare ourselves horizontally, it's going to be a stumbling block. And I, I get it. I really do. I'm not, I'm not being condescending. I get it. it. It would be a stumbling block. And I think it takes the Spirit of God to start making those things click to say, this isn't about me. This isn't about me, and this is a holy and worthy God. So what's the second thing we see that Jesus has done in this little verse and a half? We see that he has freed us. So he's loved us, but then we also see he, he's freed us. He has freed us from our sin through his blood. And that means that all of those offenses to God, all of that sin and baggage, all of those things that separate us and make us unworthy to stand before God, he has set us free from all of those things. John, right off the bat, he loves us and he has freed us. Um, brothers in this room, I don't know where you're at, right? I I'll bet you've heard maybe that before. And maybe you've thought, okay, great, I'm free from the sin that the gospel sets me free from. Um, but it doesn't feel like you're free. And maybe to, to the other men in this room, you feel like I still very much feel chained. I have put my faith in Christ, and yet my sin is constantly creeping at the door. My sin is constantly waiting for me when I go home. My sin is constantly waiting for me when I pull out my smartphone or when I 
enter into this relationship with this person, or when I, whatever it is, when I get in traffic, when I look at my bank account, when I, all of these things, my sin is constantly waiting. And so the idea of being freed from my sin seems like a really distant, impersonal, great head knowledge. Sure, theologically I've been freed, but it, it hasn't really played itself out in your life. Brothers, you have been freed from your sin. The shackles have been released. That sin no longer has power over you, and yet we still walk in that. And I do the same thing. I still walk in this this level of disobedience and this level of lack of love and lack of obedience towards what God has called me to do, and yet I no longer have to. I've been set free from that. And man, you are free. And so my challenge and my encouragement, if John is giving you this truth, if the revelation of Jesus is giving that truth, then walk in it. I know I'm not supposed to give application until the end of the sermon, but listen to me. Walk in the freedom that if you are in Christ has already been purchased for you by a gory, gory death by God's son on a cross. Walk in that. And if you're thinking, how the hell do I walk in that? Surround yourself in community with other people who are trying to walk out that freedom. Put yourself in community with other believers who have also been set free and and who are moving towards that end. Be in the word of God, remembering, remembering, remembering. Surround yourself with other men and then when you sin and when you walk back into that dungeon and when you return to those things that don't give life and you return and you start drinking from those wells that are empty, then you drag those things into the light through confession with other people that love Jesus and get the gospel and you say, man, I am struggling with this. Here's my stuff. And you let them speak grace and truth into your life. You let them love you with grace and truth. And you drag that stuff into the light. And then if you start to wander, you grab your sin and you drag it back into the light. And you let the light of God's grace heal and restore and move you towards being a man who is walking as Christ walked. I'm right there with you, brothers. We've got to drag our stuff into light. And my sisters in this room, you have been freed from your sin. Do you believe that? I don't know what your past looks like. I don't know what your story is. I don't know what your present looks like. Right? Your sin might not be something that happened a while back. Your sin might be something that happened this past weekend or today or right now, this thoughts or this identity that you're wrestling with. It's not, it's not what he says of you, and it's this slavery and it's this bondage. You've been freed from that. There is nothing you have possibly ever done that is more powerful or will, nothing you ever will do that is more powerful than the grace of God and the power of God on the cross when Jesus died. There is no sin bigger than that. There is no combination of sin in your life that has made you ruined or unworthy to step into and accept that grace. That is the the cost that was paid for you, and that is available to everyone today. And if you put your faith in Christ and you have surrendered your life, but you still find yourself, then pull the sin into the light and get yourself in a community of other people that understand that. Get in a home group. Find somebody who you know understands the gospel and say, man, will you hold me accountable to this stuff? I am tired of walking in this lack of freedom that has already been purchased for me. Freedom is available. He loves you. He has freed you. And now the third thing we see he's done. We're just in this first verse and a half. He hasn't just freed you so that you can be your own God. Right? He hasn't just freed you so you can be your own God free of any sin. He has freed you and made you A kingdom, his kingdom. He has freed you and made you a priest, his priest. Look at verse six. And made us a kingdom, priest to God and Father, 
To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Man, a priest in the Old Testament, uh, a priest in the Old Testament was, uh, the context he's talking about here was this holy person, right, who is an intermediary between God and the people of God. And a priest would have been somebody who lived this holy life, who was representing God, and then also loved the people and, and communicated to the people and spoke truth and grace to the people so that they might understand God's love and God's direction for their life. That's what a priest was. And now he has made that. In the same way that he loves us, in the same way that he connected to this idea that he's freed us, he has also made us a kingdom of priests, right? First Peter talks even more about this. This idea that we are now kingdom of all of us. We no longer just need a priest to be our intermediary. We who are in Christ are filled with the Holy Spirit and now we represent God on this earth sharing the love and the awesome holiness of God. That's what he's done, man. Last week, we talked about it. Last week, if you were here, we had three people up here who the gospel had changed their lives in significant ways. And attached to that, it wasn't just they, their lives were changed and now they decided to go varsity Christian and really pour their lives out in different ministries in the city. It was that it was interconnected to the idea of them being set free was synonymous with the idea of them now having a new identity, which looked like, I'm gonna serve the city. I'm gonna serve in these nonprofits. I'm gonna pour my life out because that's what I have been set free to do. Not just set free and now I'm good and I can wander around and I got my hall pass for heaven whenever it all ends. It is, it is synonymous with the idea of the gospel. Should be this maturity and sanctification process. Um, you know why I believe there are more and more atheists or at least agnostics in the world? I, th I think it's because we just stop after the whole getting set free from sin part. And we don't really do that that well either, if, if we're honest. But we're not walking out our faith as priests, representing a holy God, loving those around us, being a representation, an intermediary. And so the world around us, and if you're in this room, if you're in this room and you are not on board with the Christian thing, praise God you're in this room. You're in the right place. It's, I'm glad you're here. Um, the songs, I'm sure, are weird to you. Sorry about that. But this is it's a good place to be, right? And so, and so I want you to know that there's probably some really great, really great intellectual uh, arguments and stumbling blocks that you have. And, and I think those should be worked through. I think Christianity has a lot of answers, a lot of answers. But I would also imagine... I would also imagine that you got just enough of Christianity or just enough of religion or just enough of God or maybe just enough of Jesus. And you saw that and you thought, okay, interesting. And then you looked at the people who were following. And we see hypocrisy throughout. Me included. Like I'm not just throwing other people under the bus. I am not always a great representation of who Christ is. And so you got just enough of him to then feel like, okay, well, who, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? These are the people who are representing Christ, and, and you saw a community of people who, yes, were sinful and were broken, and we misrepresent Jesus at times. We misrepresent Jesus at times. You know the worst, those who are in the food industry know this, um, the worst shift, I've been told, ever to do if you are a waiter or a waitress is Sunday afternoon, the church crowd is the crowd that waiters and waitresses, I've been told, loathe. Do we represent Christ in the way we tip? Do we represent Christ the way we pour our lives out, the way we serve people, the way we love people, the way we have compassion, the way compassion has been shown to us, and the way we speak truth, and the way the truth has been spoken into our life? Do we represent him well as believers, 
as priests, as something that we know he has done. He has loved us. He has set us free, and he has made us priests. Are we that in our culture? Or are we a stumbling block? Because our culture looks at us and thinks, yeah, right. Holiness? You kidding me? That should convict us. It shouldn't take us out of the game. Shouldn't hang our heads low and, oh, man, I, we really suck. Yeah, we suck. Praise God for that. Let's go. Let's do better. And also, let me say, there are men and women in this room, too, who humble me by the way they love the Lord. And so if you're stumbling with this, man, just find a different crew of Christians to hang out with or give this community a chance to maybe be a little bit of a salt that flavors who Jesus really is. And if we blow it, I'm sorry, don't blame Jesus for it. Don't blame Jesus for it. For the rest of us, man, we are given a huge mantle, a huge mantle to represent Jesus Christ. And he has empowered us, and he will empower us to do it if we're obedient. Okay, what he's done. He's loved us, he's freed us, he's made us a kingdom of priests. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, we see, Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tri- all tribes of earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. We're seeing in verse 7 what he will do. The last section we saw what he did. He loved and freed and made us priests. And now we're seeing what he will do. He's coming back. John is setting up this letter for the rest of the book. Who he was and what he's going to do, he's coming back. Church, do we know he's coming back? Brothers and sisters, are we ready for him to come back? We don't know exactly what that looks like. We don't know exactly when that is. Uh, Charles Swindoll wrote this in his commentary of Revelation. He said, when the true sovereign sets foot on the Mount of Olives, no applause will erupt from those who have rejected him. No marching band will play his anthem. No red carpet will mark his way. No massive banner will greet him, displaying a bold welcome home. Instead, Christ's coming will be accompanied by mourning because he will be coming as judge. Now is the time to figure out who Jesus is. He is coming back. Now is the time to figure out who Jesus really is for all of us, to lean in and say, Jesus, I want to recognize you. I want to know you. Jesus, I want to glorify you more. I want to represent who you really are to the world around me as a priest, as a kingdom, as your kingdom. So those around me might get a taste. Now is the time to look at who Jesus is. Look at verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. John's letting us know who he is, what he did, what he's going to do, and who he is. He's the Alpha and the Omega. The Omega is the end. It's the last letter in the Greek alphabet. He is the A to the Z and everything in between. Jesus is our hope. The reason we talk about Jesus so much is because he is our only hope. He is the beginning. He is the end. And he's so deep that we can spend the rest of our lives staring and leaning in with more and more and more to see. And that's where this book is is taking us. So I want us to see something about who he is now. Um, And so we're going to move pretty quick through the rest of this chapter. And I want us to see this story that unplays here. Um, And it's going to be a look at who Jesus is and how John interacts with him. So pick up in verse 9, and we'll throw it up on the screen for you. So the next verse picks up, and it says, I, John, your brother and partner in tribulation, 
And the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Those are the seven churches that uh, we're gonna spend several weeks in. Then, verse 12 says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a, with a long robe and with golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. John, the apostle, is sitting on the island of Patmos 60 years after approximately Jesus has ascended. Jesus, who he was the beloved disciple, who he on the Last Supper was, was laying up against. Jesus, who he walked with, who he knew. 60 years of following, walking in the Spirit, of God in ways that I, I am jealous to walk in was John living his life out and he turns and he sees Jesus and look at his reaction. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. John knew Jesus intimately. They knew each other. They were so close. John comes face to face, 60 years after following Jesus. He comes face to face with the Jesus he never knew. He turns and sees the risen, powerful, authoritative Jesus Christ in all of his glory and his reaction. This guy who he cuddled with at the Last Supper, he falls on his face as though dead. John is looking at a Jesus he never knew. John is looking face to face, and here we see his revelation. I saw him. I fell at his feet as though dead. That is beautiful and powerful, and that should... That should Awake my soul to say, I need to stare at Jesus more. I need to look at Jesus. This was John the apostle. I need to look at Jesus more. I have settled for a, maybe a, a more shallow version or a simpler version or a version that maybe of Jesus that fits my life and I'm a little bit more comfortable with. I want to come face to face with who Jesus is. I don't want, I don't want to make him fit my life. I want to submit my life to him. I want that for us. Matthew 7, 21 says this, not everyone who says to me, Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, the end, the last day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? These guys, are, these guys have done their stuff. They're saying, Jesus, we prophesied, we cast out demons, we did mighty works. These are people who did I mean, they were varsity. If there was a varsity, they were varsity. And then I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. 
Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And we cannot be complacent about who Jesus is. We cannot afford to be complacent about leaning in and staring more and more deeper at who Jesus Christ is. To change our lives, to make sure we're walking in the freedom, to represent the kind of priests we're called and commanded to be in the culture around us. We've got to get into his word, study it. The Old Testament, what did Jesus look like? In the Gospels, what did Jesus... In, it is all one big picture of Jesus. How do we see him more and more and more? We do a reading plan here with Renovate, and uh, we're wrapping that up in the next couple of days, and we're starting a new one on Sunday or Monday. And they're out here on this board that says, Grow With Us. And it's just a reading plan, right? You pick it up, and you just, every day, you just grab it on your way out. And, and we're picking up, we just are kind of wrapping up the poetic books, and so it's going to be in the Old Testament. Read with us. This Sunday, if you've been reading with us, or you haven't, we just read a quarter of the Bible together, those who tracked with the reading plan. And in this room, I believe, at what time? 7 o'clock? 6.30. In this room, we're just going to talk about who, what the Word of God says and what it reveals about Jesus and what it looks like. And we're going to walk through the Psalms. We're going to walk through all these books that we've been chewing on. Come and join us for that at 6.30 as we just look at the Bible. And if you haven't, if you haven't been reading with us, fine. You're just going to get the cliff notes. You're just going to hear a lot of people talk about the word of God and how it's shaping who God is because this is what should shape who God is. Not how I feel God should be, not what's comfortable to me, but this is our truth. This is the revelation. This whole Bible, the word of God, Jesus revealed himself to us. Our God is revealing who he is, the triune God, and we get to stare at him and look at him. Get in the word of God. If you hear this application, right, and you think, man, this is great for new believers. This is a great sermon for like a new believer or maybe like a, maybe kind of like on the fence kind of guy. And, and you're like, man, this is awesome. Um, I really hope they listen to it. Stop. Stop. Don't let your arrogance, don't let your arrogance keep you from a deeper relationship with the genuine God of the universe a deeper relationship with the genuine God of the universe. Don't reduce and settle for a comfortable Jesus. Don't reduce and settle for a Sunday school, kids camp version of Jesus. Don't reduce and settle for an easy Jesus or just the future Jesus that says, well, man, when I get there, I've lived a pretty good life. I think when I stand before him, I'll figure that out then. The, the apostle John turned and saw the future Jesus and he was as close as anyone, and he fell on his face as if dead. And if you're waiting to say, you know, I'm going to figure that out, and I'm just going to do my thing, don't. Please, don't. Get in the Word. Sit under teaching or preaching that is going to make much of Jesus and talk about Jesus. And find community. Get in a home group. Find community of other people who want to know what this God looks like more and more and more and more. And do it all with this posture of prayer and humility. Do it all with the posture of prayer and humility, asking the Lord, teach me, show me what you look like. That's where we're going. If you are a believer in this room, that's where we're going. If you're not a believer in this room, that is what is available to you. And it is worth your life. It is worth your life. John, 60 years after Jesus ascended, he turned and he found this Jesus that he never knew. Lean in, chase after that. Let me pray over you. Father, would we do that? Would we do that well? Would we not reduce you 
the incarnate form of the triune God? Would we not settle for something less? Would we not settle for something comfortable? Would the most mature believer in this room say, I need more of him. I want to stare at his face more. I want to know him more. I want to know his character and his ways. I want to study his word and see how he's revealed. Would the person in this room who's maybe furthest, maybe they're just struggling with guilt and shame in their own life, God, would they walk out the freedom that they have in Christ? Would they surrender their life to you? Would they come face to face with this awesome Jesus, this awesome, awe-inspiring, powerful God that you are? Let us not take this lightly, Lord. Show up, challenge us, and God, thank you for being able to be approached because of what you did, because of the blood that got poured out, your blood emptied for us. God, those who know you, Lord, we get to approach you. Thank you for that, Father. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. In the name of Jesus.